And I'm so grateful for all the people that made our Easter season happen here at the church. So many people make it possible and serve in a variety of ways. It takes a team effort to do a Christmas season and to do an Easter season. From the greeters to the musicians to the people taking care of breakfast to the board members that serve that breakfast to our rooted workers to Sarah being so faithfully getting the bulletin. Uh, bulletin's ready to go every Sunday, but then on Easter Sunday as well. To Tom and our facilities team that make sure things are in order from a building perspective. To our people in the sound booth, to the people that were willing to be recorded for the Hope Story. To the people that helped with baptism, including even people like Jerry Shackle that helped empty out the horse trough after we were done. Thank you. You helped us to express our gratitude to Christ this Easter season, and I'm so grateful for that. And I'm especially thankful for our creative team who planned it all. Um, so we have several members on that team. Yeah, why don't you stand up if you, if you serve on the creative team? Because I don't even know if people know we have this team, nor do they know who is on this team. I know Hannah is... Who else? Hannah and, of course, Brandon and Haley who are in Hawaii and Lori who's downstairs. So they're the ones who planned it all and made it such a special season. So thank you. Really appreciative of Brandon and Haley's leadership as well. This is a good place to be. Jesus is here. His people are here. That's why I love this church. Today I'm happy to return to the kingdom series, the kingdom series, the sermon series that we were in before the Easter season started, which is the upside down kingdom. We're going to return to that series. Jesus, he came onto the scene preaching this good news that the kingdom of God was at hand. So repent and believe it, enter into it, rethink your strategy for living which is one of independence from God, and turn to Jesus, enter into God's kingdom, have his power that resurrects, resurrecting you, giving you new life, an abundant life that's full of purpose and meaning and vigor and vitality. That's the offer, and it is the offer of a lifetime. It's the greatest offer we will ever receive. If we experience, if we take it in through repentance and faith. The best part of it is it's a free gift. We don't have to purchase it. We don't have to work for it. It is a free gift. Today, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, where he really outlines the ways of his kingdom, we're going to be taking a look at anger. Anger. And it's kind of a odd selection for Mother's Day, right? But I venture to say that there is nothing probably more on planet Earth that can make you angry more than motherhood and marriage. They are two of the most difficult things we can do. And I think they're two of the greatest tools that God uses to chisel us and conform us into his image. Mothers, can I get an amen? Parenthood is no joke. 
it is difficult. And often you are angry. Let's just be real. Saturday morning, yesterday morning at our house, we were all angry. Mary was angry. I was angry. Isaiah, I don't know what happened to him, but he woke up as if the world was against him, just mad and whiny and just made our house horrible. Elijah was all moping around, and here I'm thinking it's Saturday morning. We're going to have a nice cup of coffee. We're going to enjoy a slow start to our morning. Oh, no. And the best part of it, Mary was reading my sermon on anger (laughs) while this was all happening. Let's pray, and we'll take a look at the passage. Lord, we struggle with anger. Often anger gets the best of us. Often we are angry and we commit great sins. Lord, teach us how anger can be overcome. Teach us how we can be angry and not sin. May we be able to look at your model. May it inspire us. May it give us the desire to commit to you so that we can be with you, to learn from you, how to live like you in this area of relating to anger. Willpower will not do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Matthew 5, 21 through 26. This is Jesus. He's preaching, right? This is the greatest sermon ever preached. What we're about to look at has changed the course of human history. Listen up. It's words for life. Life in the kingdom. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. Wow. Intense. The last time we were in this sermon series, one of the things that I made clear, and I because Jesus' teaching makes clear, is that Jesus did not come to dismantle the Old Testament law that God gave. In fact, Jesus said that he came to fulfill the law and that whoever does it and teaches it will be great in his kingdom. The Old Testament law, you shall not murder, guess what, that's still a good idea. It still works. The problem was The way 
that the religious leaders of Jesus' day interpreted this law. What Jesus came to do and what he's doing in this passage is he is dismantling the religious leader's interpretation of this law, you shall not murder. You see, they had the understanding that they interpreted that this law this way. As long as I don't, I, I'm not murdering people, I'm good. I'm in right relationship with other people. That's how they took this command. Jesus, he comes onto the scene and he says, no, no, no. Yes, you shall not murder. That's true. But, but God's intent in giving that law was so much more than just not physically killing people. You see, people can not physically murder people, but still have all kinds of murderous attitudes, thoughts, and feelings in their heart. And Jesus is saying, look, that's got to go too. That's what the Father meant when he gave this law. It wasn't just that you wouldn't physically murder people, but you wouldn't have all this murderer ven- murderous venom inside of you as you relate to people. Because what's going on your heart going on in your heart is just as important as what is going on with your hands and your actions. You see, we can be harboring murderous attitudes, feelings, and thoughts towards a person. We can and Jesus knew, look, it's only a matter of time until that stuff comes out. Given the right circumstances, given the right situation, eventually that junk in your heart, it is going to come out. It's only a matter of time. And look, we, we, we may not murder a person, but we give them the silent treatment. We may not physically murder the person we're angry with, but we murder the person's reputation by gossiping about them. We may not physically murder a person, but we may pretend as if they don't exist and completely ignore them. We may not physically murder a person, but we treat them in all sorts of ways that will kill them over time. Maybe not physically, but it will kill their spirit. It will crush their soul. In fact, we may, make, we may be so successful in making a person that we're angry with so miserable that physical death actually seems like maybe even a lighter option. May even seem like it's relief. And then there's the negative effects of harbored anger that take place on the individual that's harboring those feelings. They become short with people, even the people that haven't done them any wrong. They're always at a boiling point, ready to explode at any moment. you got to walk on eggshells around them. They're miserable. They don't sleep well. They don't eat well. Their body's impacted. I read that new studies argue that, the re- that having regular feelings of anger 
increase your likelihood for heart disease. And, with two, and with, within two hours of an outburst, the chances of a heart attack or stroke skyrocket. Jesus, he wants to change our heart in regards to anger because it is devastating for you and for everybody involved. But this raises a good question, doesn't it? Was Jesus condemning anger? Is all anger wrong? Is it a sin to be angry, so just don't be angry? But wait a minute, Jesus was angry, wasn't he? So did Jesus, was he sinning when he was angry? He flipped over tables and benches in the temple courts and he drove out the people that were there buying and selling so that the Gentiles couldn't worship God. Was Jesus sinning in his anger? No. This is what I believe Jesus is condemning in our, in our passage. He's condemning a particular kind of anger. You see... Anger can manifest itself in a variety of ways, but no matter which way it manifests itself, every form of anger falls into two categories. It's either sinful anger or it is righteous anger. It's either sinful or it is righteous. I, would, I know we would all like to admit that most of the time our anger is righteous, but it very rarely ever is, as we will see. So what are the components of sinful anger? Well, first of all, it's without cause, Jesus tells us. What does that mean, without cause? I think it means that we're often angry for no good reason. We're not actually angry over sin. A writer by the name of Tim Challey says that most of the time, we don't get angry over actual sin, but rather violations of our desires and preferences. Hmm. Because we are extremely selfish, egotistical, prideful, we get ticked off when our desires and our preferences aren't met. Even though no one has sinned against us. For example, I get angry when I see Mary's piles laying all over our house. My desire, my preference is to have a home that is free from clutter. Did Mary sin against me? Is it a sin to have piles around the house? No, it's not sin. She's, in my mind, sinning against my law. I'm not God. Look, uh, last Monday I was, on, I was at Lake Erie fishing. With my dad, and I had to show you a picture. Show the picture. Yeah. Yeah. So I've never had a good day fishing, ever. Ever, 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 ever. Never had a good day fishing. Dad and brother have had many good days fishing. Like 30 to 50 smallmouth bass in one day, good fishing, right? So I go up with my dad. Uh, it was like the week before. We caught five fish, all three of us, like eight hours on the water. I almost like said I quit fishing forever. I was angry. Those fish don't follow my preferences. 
I did go up, gave it one more shot, and we ended up catching, I think it was 25 of like three-pound smallmouth bass and bigger. It was awesome. The best part, though, at the end when we were just about done, we were going to go to one last spot. It was the spot that we had caught eight of these bad boys at early in the morning. So we're like, let's hit that spot before we leave. My dad, last year, he caught two five to six pound smallmouth out of this place. So we went back over there. It's a small channel. And you go, you go in and you fish along the bank of this small channel. And you work yourself around the channel. Well, we're fishing. All of a sudden, this boat comes in hot like a fajita, right? It's just flying in that channel. Right past us. I mean, this channel is not wide at all. Cuts right in front of us, right to the spot where you catch the most fish that we were working to. Thankfully, my dad, he held it together. I'm telling you, Jesus is changing him. Because my dad, I'm, this is no joke. My dad would have fought these guys. Like, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, he would have hopped off his boat, he would have swam over there, and he would engage both of them at one time. And he's tough. He probably would have beat them both up. I'm saying, that, that was my dad. He held it together. But it reminded me, because I had just written this sermon, right? So I could be all cool, right? Because this was in my mind. But look, did those guys sin against us really? No, what they did was they went against our preference and desire. Our preference was the fish in that spot. They knew it was a good spot too, obviously. But did they really sin against us? I don't know. Maybe. Check out your anger over this last week. I almost guarantee that the things you were angered about this past week or, or over were due to your preferences and your expectations not being met. Not actual sin. Almost guarantee it. And here's the thing. I've mentioned, this be, I've mentioned this to you before. Our desires and preferences easily become demands. Because we elevate things to like God things in our life. And we tell ourselves we have to have them. We need them in order to be happy. And when you do that with something, that's when anger turns into fury. It turns into wrath. The, the earrings come out, right? The claws come out. You've got to have it. So often our anger is sinful because we're not upset over actual sin. But rather we're upset because our desires and preferences aren't being met. Or we've turned desires and preferences into demands. God thinks we have to have. And that's when we really get mad. Often our anger is no, for no good reason. It's without cause. That's, that's, that's one of the aspects of sinful anger. I think it's also without cause in the sense that often our sinful anger is disproportionate to the crime. That, that means that the, the, the degree to which we're angry is without cause. This is often the case, isn't it? Sometimes people actually do sin against us, and we have a valid reason for being angry, but our anger is at such a high degree that it doesn't match the crime. We have a tendency to fly off the handle. 
we're often out of control with our anger. Anger has a way of seizing our body, seizing us, and causing us to do things we would never do if that anger wasn't rushing through our veins. And so I encourage you once again to think about your anger over the last week. Has it been for the right reasons? And has it been to the right degree? Jesus taught another, so often it's without cause in those areas. Jesus taught another component of sinful anger, which is even worse than being angry for the wrong reasons and to the wrong degree. Let's check it out. Matthew 5.22, he says, And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council, but whoever says, You fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. So Raka was an Aramaic term which meant that when you called somebody it, you were calling them like an empty-headed, senseless man or person. It was a term that the the Jewish people would use in Jesus' day to express just disapproval of someone. I'm going to start calling my kids that when they make mistakes. It was really the equivalent of calling somebody, you know, an idiot or stupid or something like that today. And, of course, it was always meant to exclude. It was meant to hurt. It was meant to label someone. What we're talking about here is contempt. Contempt. Contempt is this feeling that this person or this thing is just beneath you. It's just worthless. Not really worthy of being considered. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a feeling of scorn. And yet, as unhealthy as that is, there is another phase of that that's even more dangerous. It's contempt that mixed with malice. Malice added to it. That's what's behind the word fool in verse 22. The word fool in the Bible, it was like the worst thing you could possibly call a person. It was the word that was full of the most venom. Dallas Willard, he talks about this, the Bible's use of this word. He says this, the fool in biblical language is a combination of stupid perversity and rebellion against God and all that sensible people stand for. He is willfully perverted, rebellious, knowingly wicked to his own harm. To brand someone fool in this biblical sense was a violation of the soul so devastating, of such great harm, that, as Jesus saw, it would justify consigning the offender to the smoldering garbage dump of human existence, Gehenna. It combines all that is evil in anger as well as in contempt. It is not possible for people with such attitudes toward others to live in the movements of God's kingdom, for they are totally out of harmony with it. So calling somebody a fool in the Bible would be like the equivalent today of saying, that person is a stupid effing idiot. I hope they burn in hell. That's, that's, that gets the point across, right? That's what we're talking about here. That's contempt with malice. That's anger at its worst. And don't you see what's wrong with all of this? Don't you see what's wrong with all of this? Contempt 
then mixed with the extreme form of malice mixed in it, you know what this all is rooted in? Pride. It's all rooted in pride. Sinful anger is driven by our pride. It's looking down your nose at other people. It's, it's forgetting how broken you are. It's forgetting that you're the worst of sinners. It's forgetting that if we had experienced the exact same hurts that the person we're angry with has experienced, chances are we would not be doing as good as them. Only our pride makes us think that we would be doing better. It's forgetting that even the worst of criminals are made in the image of God. When we write people off as just worthless trash, we're forgetting that God can even take them because he's done it in us and transform them. A person's contempt, a person's sinful anger shows the true condition of their hearts. It reveals that they haven't, it can reveal, that they have not understood and received the grace that God wants to give to them. It reveals that they think they are the judge and not God. And so they can choose whether to write people off or not. It reveals that they have not been humbled. It reveals that they're a person fit for hell. Not God's new world. And that means they're in serious danger. That's why Jesus is talking this way. Once anger turns into just this malice mixed in with it, you can see how physical murder is no giant leap. You can see why. People kill other people. If somebody in your mind is worthless, irredeemable, a sick, a sick excuse for a human, not made in the image of an amazing God, and has hurt you or violated you and your preferences and desires, why would you not kill them? This is how people murder. This is how a whole nation like Nazi Germany could exterminate over six million people. Anger, contempt, malice was such the fuel in the, the, the Nazi regime's hearts that they no longer saw the Jews as people made in the image of God. They saw them as trash with a number on it that needed to be get, you know, gotten rid of. Where sinful anger can lead us is sickening. And that's why Jesus is so adamantly opposing it. Here in these verses. And that is why Paul, the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Did you hear that? <coughs> Anger is the only thing mentioned in Scripture that is explicit, it explicitly says will give a foothold to the devil. That's why Jesus said in our passage, Therefore, 
If you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. This is staggering. We can just read this verse and not realize how staggering this verse is. You've got a person at the temple, right? They're there. They're before the temple officials, before the altar. They have their sacrifice ready to be sacrificed to God as an act of worship. The person is right in the middle of this. And if they remember that they're mad at someone, God is saying, stop doing what you're doing. Go be reconciled. That would be like one of us, you know, standing up to get married or being at some really important ceremony now. And we, in our mind, remember that we have, you know, somebody's angry with us. And so we leave it to go make things right. What's so staggering about this verse is you expect Jesus to say, keep on worshiping, sacrifice, you know, your sacrifice, and then go make things right. No, he says, stop it. Go make things right with the person that there is discord with. What does the Lord require of us? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. For he desires mercy, not sacrifice. Do you see how urgent this is that you seek to reconcile the relationships in your life that need to be restored? Either you're going to harbor all this venomous, murderous thoughts and feelings inside of you. Or the person that you've made angry is going to be doing the same. What I think is interesting about this verse is the person, it's not the person that's angry that Jesus says, you know, you need to go make it right. If you think you've made somebody angry, Jesus is saying, you got to go make it right. You can't have the attitude, well, it's their problem, they just need to get over it. No, Jesus is saying, you go help them get over it. Come alongside of them. Seek their welfare, because that's what love does. And if you've offended someone, go work it out with them before they even take you to court. Because if, you, if they take you to court, it's going to be a waste of energy and time. And just go make it right. You see, Jesus... He is getting at the heart of the matter, which is uh, always a matter of the heart. Think about, think about someone that is so transformed in their heart that this is how they naturally respond when difficulty comes. A person that is angry for the right reasons to the right degree at the right time. That's not harboring resentment and bitterness. Uh, imagine the type of heart that would need to be in a person that if they realize they've angered someone, that no matter what they're doing, no, how, no matter how important it is, 
They, they go and make it right. This is the beyond of the righteousness of the Pharisees that Jesus is saying, if you come, be with me to learn from me, I will empower you and transform you so that you eventually become this kind of person. You know when anger is righteous, when you're angry, but you really cons- you're really concerned about the welfare of the people that are involved. You're, you're not, your desire is not to hurt and to injure. That's a quick way to know the difference between sinful anger and righteous anger. And that's why Jesus' anger was righteous. You know when he was in the temple and he was flipping over benches and tables? This is the verse. This is what he said before that all happened. Look at Matthew 23. 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets in stones, those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. You see, Jesus' anger was righteous in that situation. His anger was mixed with sadness because the Pharisees and the religious leaders, their hearts were so hardened. He was actually upset about sin. The sin that they were failing to glorify God. They were mistreating other people. They were failing to recognize the salvation that was available in him. And his anger was at the right time, and it was to the right, de- you know, the right degree. And his anger was always mixed with the fruit of the Spirit. The same fruit of the Spirit we're praying for Oliver, right? In particular, his anger was always combined with self-control and love. You see, Jesus' anger in the temple that day was a way of him trying to get those leaders to wake up to their error. He had their welfare in mind. He wasn't holding them in contempt. Malice was not a part of that. He wasn't looking to injure, but he was looking to graciously heal. May our heart and mind be the heart and mind of Christ. How do we become this type of person? It can only be done by a work of the Spirit. But we still have a role to play in it. We're going to talk about next week what that role looks like as we're going to be talking about lust, another one of those difficult sins. So you need to be here next week because the same way we experience transformation in the area of lust is the same way we can experience transformation in this area of anger so that more and more and more our anger is more of the righteous kind instead of the sinful kind. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are our model, but you're more than that. You have made a way for us to be connected to you through your life, death, and resurrection so that we can learn from you how to be like you and that we can have the resources and the power from you that we need to be changed in our hearts so that we see people the way you see them. 
so we see accurately the grace that we have received in you so that we're able to extend that grace. Lord, you can change us. Lord, I pray that we would be a body of believers that more and more, especially in our marriages and in our families, we embody righteous anger. That we would be willing to lay down our preferences and desires for the sake of others. May we not be those people that believe that people have to be, oh, be obedient to our law, Lord. May we be more concerned if they're being obedient to your law. May we, in anger, always have it mixed with love and genuine concern for the people that are involved. Thank you that you're this way, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.